0: Well, welcome here at Sedaris during our time of teaching. um, We engage uh, typically the the scriptures. Uh, My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And one of the things I love about uh, Sedaris is how we engage these scriptures. Um, And so if you have a Bible, take it out and open up to the book of John. Uh, We're gonna be in chapter 12 today. And so there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Um, You can pull that out. And uh, I believe it's page 955. Before we start get there, get, get started there, I'm gonna tell you about this jacket, okay, this jacket. Uh, if you've been coming to Sedaris for a while, I don't really use props that often. Not like my counterpart, David of Anger, who loves props. Uh, but I love this jacket. Uh, this is a jacket that uh, my, my wonderful wife got for me a couple years ago. I put it on, I wore it. I wasn't too thrilled about it uh, at the time. And, uh, but about uh, two months ago, I, started to, I decided to give it a shot again. In this jacket, I decided to give it a shot, put it on, and I found, oh, actually, I've never worn jackets of this material. I didn't know if it could keep me warm. I didn't know if it could keep me dry, but it wicks moisture really well. Um, anyway, so I started wearing it again, and then I started discovering all these wonderful things about this jacket, um, the first of which my friends told me it was, what color do you guys think it is? See, there's some grays, there's some greens out there. I thought it was gray. I was informed that it was in fact green, which is great news for me because it's my second favorite color, green. Second favorite color, um, right behind red. Red's just the best color. So sorry if you have a different one, you're wrong. But anyways, it's, it's green, which I love. Um, but then I started discovering all these awesome pockets. Like a couple weeks ago, I got these inside pockets here. So you, know, you typically have to wear the suit jacket to do the James Bond move. Now I can do this anytime, both sides. Um, and then just this morning at like 9.35, 9.40, I did this. <laughs> I have these pockets too, you know, This, which is just incredible, you know. Um, and so I just have grown to love this jacket so much. And it's just more, more and more joy for each and every day. And it really has to do with, I thought of, you know, just this This jacket really encapsulates what I love about how we do our time of teaching here at Sedaris, here's the hook, here it is, guys, sorry. Um, I, what I See, it's wicking this water I just spilled, it's amazing. Um, we love to go into the scriptures, we love to unpack the scriptures, and I love doing that because when I was like just 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old Ryan, I didn't know if we could trust these. I had no idea if it was if we could trust these and I went through, you know, a good period of time trying to figure out if I could trust the things that are written in here. And, like, it's a very strange book. Like, anybody that tells you the Bible's really simple and easy and not strange is, like, not being completely forthright with you, you know? Like, as even you just, if you start at the beginning, it's just really strange, really quick, you know, in the book of Genesis. And there's just story after story, which is strange. And, And through college, I was really just wrestling with, can I trust these? Are they trustworthy? And it took a lot of time, and I didn't get all my questions answered. But I got a couple of them answered when I was asking, like, do these contradict themselves? And I was looking into it, and I was like, oh, they seem to at points, but those points don't. And so I decided, I think I can trust this book. I think I can trust it. And, and over the course of time, like the, um, I, I didn't understand all the answers there or understand why I could trust it or see how all the things actually piece together, and I still don't. Over the course of time, I find that I can trust it more and more. I keep on finding more pockets, I guess, is what you could say. There's, there's just more and more beautiful things about the scriptures that bring me joy, and as I communicate them to others, I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing than helping other people find the joy of the scriptures in the hopes that they might trust them too. So that's why we preach the way we do it at Sedaris, If you're newer, we typically choose a book of the Bible and we just kind of walk through it. So we begun in the book of John, which is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his his death his resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and his ministry way back at the beginning of 2023, and here we are um, in December at the end, and we've made it through 12 chapters, you know, that's pretty good, that's, well, I'm actually pretty proud to We made it through this quickly, we didn't really get bogged down, anyway, we could have gotten bogged down, guys, some of you are like, we got bogged down, <laughs> I, I feel that, that's fine, um, but no, I think we've made it really, uh, uh, I mean, if 2023, if you can say, I accomplished, go, like, walking through, 12 chapters of the book of John in sermon format, like, that's a huge accomplishment. And so, like, good on you for that. Um, And today we come to chapter 12, verse 20. So if if you're newer, let me catch up to speed with what chapter 12 is, what's going on in chapter 12 in the book of John. Like I said, John is recounting Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, the full kind of swath of it. And in John chapter 12, what begins is the last week of his death. Uh, the the, the last week leading up to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross uh, when he was crucified. Uh, Starting in chapter 13, John's going to transition and he's going to focus on the Passover meal and the conversations that were present there. And then we're going to end up going to the cross, of course, and then resurrection. So chapter 12 is really just this, this encapsulation of the week. Uh, before Jesus' death. And um, at the beginning of chapter 12, we find we're six days out from the Passover when Jesus was crucified. Um, and Jesus was in Bethany, which was a town just outside Jerusalem. We said uh, 30 football fields is what they say, the distances. They, they, they measured them in, in Roman stadiums, the 15 Roman stadiums, but one Roman stadium is two football fields. I just think it's funny that they measured things in football fields just like we do. Uh, anyways, uh, so it's, it's really close, and Jesus was there, and Lazarus was there, who he had just raised from the dead. All that is uh, um, in John chapter 11, um, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. But in the time when uh, Passover was when all of Israel, even Israelites and outside, Jews outside of Israel, would come into Jerusalem for like their big yearly festival. It was the biggest festival of the year, much like Christian, or much like, like Christmas is the biggest festival in Western society, so was Passover then. So, so every, the whole Jewish world is coming to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, to celebrate this. And then they end up going to Bethany instead of Jerusalem. <laughs> Like, Jesus is completely sidetracking what this festival was supposed to be about. It's People are running after and going to him. He's sidetracking the festival, which means he's also sidetracking um, the attention that the religious leaders of his time were looking to get. They've been preparing for a long, long time for this huge festival where the whole world comes to them to hear them teach, and, and they're going to Bethany? To see see Jesus and to investigate this miracle? So Jesus is stealing the limelight at the beginning of this week. And and then the next day, Jesus goes into Jerusalem himself, and we have this big festival uh, that's happening, but the attention's not on the festival. It's not on the temple. It's on Jesus. They're celebrating Jesus entering into the city as this nationalistic, revolutionary king. So he's stolen the limelight yet a second time. And the religious leaders in their exasperation, they just cry out, and it's, it's right there in verse 19. They cry out, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world. But there's an incredible irony to all this attention that Jesus is getting in the last week of his life that um, goes like this. Everybody has come to Jerusalem They go to Bethany, they investigate the miracle. They find out that Jesus is, in fact, who they heard he was, this incredible miracle worker who has raised Lazarus from the dead. The religious elites are so upset, they're like, we gotta kill Lazarus too because they keep on talking to Lazarus. Okay, so we found out, we've come, we've heard rumor Jesus, come to Jerusalem, went to Bethany, found out that it's true, and they've heralded him in as this big king that's gonna accomplish their nationalistic cause. And the great irony is, and John gives us this irony, and including this verse from from the Old Testament book of Isaiah that Dave unpacked last week, the great irony is that Jesus has no intention of championing their cause whatsoever. He has his own plan in mind. And his plan is to enter I love how you said this last week, Dave, is to enter into Jerusalem. There's all these Passover lambs being brought into sacrifice, is to enter into Jerusalem as a Passover lamb himself and die. So everyone's really looking forward to him being this new revolutionary thing. The irony is, Jesus is not there to do anything remotely close to that. He's come to die. He's come to die. And uh, John is interesting in the fact that when he writes his account of of Jesus, he doesn't start with the birth narratives. He knows, he's writing much after the other three accounts that we have in the scriptures, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he knows that Matthew and Luke have given you so many details of the nativity of Jesus' birth. He's really focusing here in this chapter 12, it's strange how many nativity details are surfacing again. It's almost as if he's saying, don't forget why Jesus came to earth to to begin with. He came to die. Look at all these nativity details that are present. We have Marys are are, are everywhere, and that's just anywhere in the Bible. There's Marys all over the place. But there's these other details that are in there, including like uh, voices in the heavens like we'll see today, foreigners uh, coming to seek out Jesus like we'll see today. But more than that, there's this big tension present is that when Jesus shows up as a baby, just like when he shows up to die, then we're calling this the nativity of his death. That's kind of what we're focusing on this nativity season, a little bit darker than maybe nativity seasons you've engaged in the past. But, but the big, big overlap is whenever Jesus shows up, people who want to preserve their own power and glory in the world try to kill him. So Herod tries to do it when he's a baby, and, and Matthew and, and Luke really uh, like help us see that, and then the, the religious leaders are going to do so here. Um, And so that's actually what we find is exactly what Jesus is counting on. He wants to be the Passover lamb, and so he's going to make his glory project really, really evident really, really evident. And the way that he does that is by way of a conversation that he has with the crowds. So over the book of John, we've read several um, conversations that Jesus has had with the crowds, where he says these cryptic things, confuses the crowds, and people from the crowd respond with questions, and he says more cryptic things, okay? This is kind of Jesus's MO. Um, It's probably less of like an open mic where the crowds are proclaiming these questions together, but likely the religious leaders that are in the crowds are kind of addressing the questions to Jesus, and then Jesus is proclaiming the answers to these questions to the crowds. But this is Jesus's last public conversations with, public conversation with the crowd. And what we're going to see is that they completely by the end of it are not on team Jesus anymore. They're not about him. It's it's just remarkable. What we're going to see is this conversation is thought to be the day after he came into Jerusalem. The day after he came into Jerusalem, and 18 verses later, John's going to tell us no one believed in him. Whoa! So let's just look at this conversation, what what, what the dynamic is at play in it, and then we can really have a conversation, see that it's about glory, and talk about how do those particularities work its way into our life to bring us life. So... Um, 12, starting in verse 20, and we're gonna go through verse 37 here, okay? So, verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. That's uh, the, the festival of the Passover. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Bethsaida was a region that was near something called the Decapolis, which is 10 Greek cities kind of in, in, in northeastern Israel, okay? So they, they, they probably recognize, oh, this guy's got a Greek name. Philip means horse lover, he comes from a Greek place. Let's go ask him if we can, if we can see and talk with Jesus. And so Philip says, "Then, uh, so they requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. And so Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew uh, also is from the same city as Philip, also with a Greek name that means manliness, okay? Manliness. Uh, the, the Jews would wait eight days to name their children, and so I don't know what Andrew looked like as a baby, but he must have been ripped. Uh, I like to think that... <laughs> so so Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for our eternal life. Okay, we got a little bit of cryptic stuff happening, typical. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, and if you're looking for nativity details, perhaps this is akin to the the angel showing up to the the shepherds and these voices coming from the heavens proclaiming the plan of Jesus. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They understand he's talking about his death. They understand. There's something that's happened here where Jesus is being cryptic is now actually being communicated They understand that he's clearly saying to them, I am going to die. Whereas before here, it's unclear whether the crowds really understood this message. They're saying, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? In the Hebrew scriptures, the Son of Man reigns forever. So how can he die is what they're saying. Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. And then 37, into the next section we see, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. So this conversation changes everything for the crowds. It, their, their disposition is, is all of the celebration and praise and excitement for Jesus on the front end, and then apathy on the back end. Now, you probably have lots of questions uh, with regards to it. We're going to unpack some of them, but probably the first one is like, what's going on with these Greeks? Where'd they go? These guys are the ones that got the ball rolling after all, but then there's no mention of them whatsoever, and does this remind you of any other figures in the nativity of the birth of Jesus Christ? Any any other figures that show up from lands distant and far because they know who Jesus is? They're curious to investigate him and honor him as king? Anybody? Oh, thanks, Dave. The wise men. The wise men, yeah. The the magi come all the way from what's thought to be Persia, and they come and pay homage to the, the, the child king, Jesus Christ. And now here, we at the nativity of his death, we have these Greeks coming from the north and the west. The, the, these Greeks were likely God-fearing, God-fearing Gentiles who had converted to, to, to Judaism, um, and they too had heard the rumors about this Messiah figure, want to investigate Lazarus and, and talk with Jesus about it. And, and, and similar to the, the, the wise men in, in uh, the birth accounts, they, there's not much significance attached to Who they are or what they think. The significance is really just attached to their presence. The whole world has come to the foot of the Christ. What does this tell us? It tells us that God's plan through Jesus is going to be way bigger than Israel, way bigger than Israel. And their search of Jesus sparks off this conversation. I don't think they disappear. I think they are probably a part of this conversation as, as a part of the crowds here moving forward. But it sparks off this conversation where the crowds turn on Jesus by the end of it. And this conversation is to blame. Their enamorment, their excitement with Jesus turns into we're done with him. We're done. Why? What happened? What happened? Well, the subject of the conversation is in the opening line in verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's really a conversation about glory and what the, the glory of Jesus as the coming King is going to look like. That's what this conversation is all about. And what we're going to see happens is that Jesus' uh, discussion of what his glory will look like does not match their desires whatsoever. It does not match their desires for what they want the glory of Israel to look like moving forward. John is making it very clear to us that he's showing us that that these crowds were hoping for a very, very different version of glory than that which Jesus said he came to bring. Now, why is John drawing this out for us? Why, Why does John wanna make this clear? Well, at the time that John's writing this, he had actually led the Jesus movement for five decades or so, 50 years about. Um, and, so, and, and I think he's writing because he saw something. He saw something. He, he saw a reality present within many of the followers of Jesus as it was growing and expanding rapidly, not only just in Jerusalem or Israel or Samaria, but all the way out into the Greeks. I think he saw something. He saw that just like this Israelite crowd it's possible to claim a seat at the table in the family of God as a follower of Jesus, but, but, but similar, um, really only seeing Jesus as a means to accomplish their own hopes and desires in the world. I think John was sensing this, and he says, oh, we've seen this before. We've seen this in, in the people of God before when God showed up on the scene, and, and there's a dynamic of this that is present that I'm seeing now, and in fact, this is, a dynamic that, if we really take an honest view of history, that has plagued the church for 2,000 years. At diff- different places, different times, not just Christians, but entire movements can come very, very concerned with, with what they think the glory of God should look like in their midst. And they get it wrong, and weird, awful stuff happens. Terrible things happen. Because they get the, 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 the notion of, of God's glory wrong. It's about glory. They become concerned on their own, with their own glory. And John is giving us this conversation because within it is a form of glory test, a form of test of of whose glory are you really about here in this world. That's why John's giving it to us. It's it's a way of asking who and, and what really is the king of your heart, like we talked about last week a little bit. Now, it can be difficult for us to know the answer to that question at times, right? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, it can be difficult to know what is my primary uh, focus of what I want to see happen in this world. What What glory do I really want to see take place and manifest in our midst? Am I really just am I following the desires of my own heart now, or what Jesus wants to see happen in the world? If, if, if you're not a Christian, and, and you're here listening, you might be surprised, like, oh, Christians think like this too? Like, it's not entirely given that, that even us as Christians, we're always doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way. And so John gives us this kind of glory test, which is present within this conversation. And in this conversation, there's really three talking points that Jesus has, um, in the, and it's really broken up by his three different things that he says. Um, first, he says how glo- God's glory works. Uh, second, he says what the glory of the cross does. Well, he's talking about it as will do, but looking back, what it did. Okay, and then third, um, how humans can get on board with that glory, okay? So we're just gonna go through those together uh, to really see what this glory test is all about. Um, and as a heads up, the, this first one, how God's glory works is, is far more nuanced than the other two, so we're gonna spend most of our time there. Uh, just don't uh, feel disenchanted if you're like, oh man, we're still on the first point here, we're gonna be here forever today. I just don't want you feel that, okay? The last two are gonna go quick, okay, all right. So, um, so Jesus started off by saying this in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he's going to tell us how God's glory works. Now, he calls himself the Son of Man, which everyone listening, if you were Jewish, knew what that was. And it's very clear that they had um, really merged this notion of the Son of Man and the Messiah together to understand as the, uh, this being, this, this person, to be someone who would rule Israel forever. That would never die. We, uh, we saw that in this conversation. The Old Testament scriptures talk about this, this coming wondrous, powerful ruler from God that would come and, and rule in Israel and, and make them something in the world. And throughout Jesus' ministry, different people come up to him and ask him this question in different ways, like, are, hey, are you going to start doing this yet? And, and Jesus is always like, not yet, not yet, not yet, not, not, not yet. Here he says, yep, it's time. Let's go. It's time for the Son of Man to do his thing which as we read on, we're going to find out is to die. And this is the strategy that he says. This is what he says, this, the, the strategy of this coming ruler to take. This is what the coming ruler is going to do. Verse 24, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves their life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We're kind of in the realm of glory still. Now, yeah, so, so this is really the strategy that's going on here. And there's a lot of conditional statements like if this, then that, if this, and that. So I made a slide to make it clear. We'll throw that up here on the screen for you. As he's paralleling these two notions, okay? So he talks about the seed, metaphor of a seed. He so said, if a seed does not fall to the ground, it remains a single thing. If it does fall to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. This is what he says. This is kind of the purpose of the seed, okay? And the most uncomfortable part probably about this is, you know, you would expect him to say, so the son of man. He doesn't. He says, so if a person He's saying there's a whole new way that not just he is operating in the world, but that his followers are going to make manifest as well. This whole new strategy of life that up to this point wasn't uh, understood, accepted, leaned into. This is the, the, the unique contribution of, of Christ into the world uh, is that life works like this. Okay, it's a bit jarring. If a person loves their life, they'll lose it. But if a person hates their life, they'll keep it forever. He's conceiving of himself this way and his followers. That's why he, he dovetails right into his followers. What's going on? Like We can understand, Jesus, if, if you have to die to, to make fruit, if you have to hate your life in some way in order for life to happen, but you're calling your followers to this as well? No wonder why he lost the crowds. No wonder. Heavy topics. So let's break this down into two parts here real quick. First, what does it mean to hate your life? And then what does it look like to follow Jesus? Okay, what does it mean to hate your life? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Two huge, heavy topics. Um, let's go. Let's roll up our sleeves. We, we, we do a lot of heavy lifting here at Sedaris on Sunday mornings. Uh, so th- these, are, these are heavy ones to pick up. What does it mean to hate your life now? It's a bit abstract, and I wish I could swoop in and say something like, oh, when we understand the Greek that this was originally written in, that John wrote in Greek, and there's really no English equivalent of this, and so the translators, they decided to use the word hate. And so it doesn't really mean that. I can't really do that. It's, it means hate. It means hate, and it's used often in the scriptures of actually intense personal hate between one person and, and, and another, like this deep detestation that humans can have. Um, so, but how are we to take this then? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Is, is, is Jesus really about self-hatred? Is, is Jesus um, masochistic? Is he really all about low self-esteem and, and low self-regard? Like, are, are human beings just worms to him? Like, what, what's going on here, Jesus? I thought you loved us. Now you're telling us we need to hate our, 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 our lives? But remember, we're in the subject of glory. And, and, and he has zeroed in on the, on the tension that the human condition for all of us creates around glory. He's talking about glory. And, and the human condition is, is we love our lives, don't we? Now, now, he's not just saying that we value life, like we're glad we're alive or something like this when we're, when we're talking about glory. He's pointing to the fact that we, we love our lives in the sense that we long to receive glory for them. We love for our lives to be uh, that which can bring us glory, praise, recognition, honor uh, from other people. The the simple matter is that humans, all of us love propping up our lives in a certain sense to receive praise from one another. That's just what we do. That's, That's part and parcel of what it means to be human. And so this is what Jesus is honing in on. He says, you have to hate that. I'm coming here to start a different glory project and you pursuing that glory project isn't gonna let you pursue what I'm up to here in this world. You have to to hate that. Humans, you guys are obsessed with your own glory is what Jesus says. I'm obsessed with my own glory. This is how we come into the world. This is our default condition. Jesus says, "Ah, that doesn't work in my kingdom. It doesn't work like that. None of us get away from This tension, it's part and parcel of what it means to be human. We actually see it present in the account of the fall all the way back in Genesis chapter three. The the serpent shows up on the scene and talks to Eve, which is like a crazy thing. I'm not sure exactly how serpents talk and all this jazz. Anyways, but, but his central temptation of Eve along with Adam who was with her was God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he knows that if you do, you will be like him. Knowing good and evil, he's saying you will have glory like him. That's why he's withholding from you. He wants all the glory for himself. And so she gave in along with Adam. And this is like self-seeking, glory-fulfilling, like self-glory-fulfilling project is something that each of us has inherited in in terms of this like spiritual DNA uh, moving forward. None of us gets away with it. And we're all continuously tempted to pursue our own personal glory in the world. We don't need to look hard. We don't need to look far to find it because it's always been true of human and it's always been pretty painfully obvious. Like we didn't need social media to tell us this was true, even though social media confirms it to the nth degree. Look look at the glory projects that we've created on social media. We're all guilty of it. This is what we do as human beings. We're obsessed with our own glory. So this is all to say that the the, the glory project of the self, it just dominates the human condition. It dominates it. There's no getting away from it. We're all, in a certain sense, servants to that. Jesus is looking for servants to his glory project. That's what he's all about. Now each of our glory projects are very unique. Uh, the way we pr- pursue our own individual glory varies from one person to the other. It can be it can range from just trying to be a really good person, a really helpful person, a really successful person, a really creative and unique person, a really capable person, a real solid, steady, secure person, the really fun person, powerful person, the agreeable person. Okay, all of these are are, are us really trying to create an ego that's worthy of worship, an ego that's worthy of worship. Now don't hear me wrong, all those things are good. Like it's good to be helpful, steady, capable, fun. All these things, they're really good things. But, but it begins to feel a little bit gross when someone is trying to do good things in the world in order to show that they're better than everybody else. Am I right? Like that, yeah, that makes us cringe. That, that, that's a little bit gross. It, it feels a little bit weird when someone's helping you from their own messiah complex. Right, like, ooh, and it just highlights how our individual glory projects actually set us up um, in opposition to one another. Our individual glory projects really set us up in opposition to one another. Um, Even if on the surface we can say our motivations are true, we can feel something else completely different. That's because they pervade the human heart, okay? So, So have I convinced you that you're obsessed with glory yet? And that's okay, that's just part of the human, that's just what is. Now, of course we are. What are we to do? Now Jesus isn't saying our self-glorification projects, he's not saying they they don't work. Sometimes they will let us down, but a lot of times they work really well. Like we can receive the the praise and recognition and, and, and lauding that we're hoping for. They actually work really, really well. But he's just saying there isn't room for that in his eternal kingdom. We can have our temporal glory projects now, is what he's saying here, but eventually it'll come to an end. If you love your life, you'll lose it. He's saying, I have a glory project that continues forever. I have an eternal glory project that you can get in on that'll continue forever, that'll bring you life into eternity. That's what this is about. This is Jesus' actual, his core question. Do you want to be temporarily glorified by other humans or eternally honored by the creator of the universe? It's a real question. Like, that's a real tension. Like, we don't, not, like, you might be like, I'm not entirely sure that creator of the universe exists, so I'll go with the humans, please. Thank you. Uh, very reasonable, but that's the question to wrestle with. Do we want the temporal uh, recognition for our glory projects here on earth from one another, or do we want honor from the Father into eternity? That's the question Jesus leaves us with, and unfortunately, it is an either or. An either or. That's what he says. It's your choice. So, so, so hating our life doesn't mean anything masochistic at all. It means you you change your mind about the glory project that's worth pursuing in life. That's what it means, to to change your mind towards pursuing Jesus' glory in this world instead of your own, your own. So the catch, and Jesus is very clear about this, which is why the, the crowds are like, we're out. The catch, it's gonna require serving Jesus. That's what he says, my servant, he must follow me. He must go where I go. So what does it mean to follow? Secondly, what does it mean to follow then? Um, this is such a crucial, crucial question. Like, what does it mean? What exactly does it mean? This is what John's always doing. He's trying to, like, really bring out some, some tensions and say, what, exa- what does that exactly mean? What, is, what exactly do you guys think I mean when I say following Jesus? If we polled ourselves today, we'd probably get a dozen different answers. <laughs> what exactly does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus clarified it like this He says, Where I am, my servant will also be. servant will also be. It's a really strange thing to say from someone who's going to die in four days. He's going somewhere else. So how can we be with Christ? Uh, Probably one of the better ways uh, to begin to understand what it means to follow Jesus is to actually look at the gospel of Mark. He just has a great story that, well, it's an account that happened in Jesus's life when someone came to him and really asked him how he might get this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. It's in Mark chapter 10. Um, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, so Jesus is gonna go to the next town to, to proclaim his kind of gospel message, stump speech. That's what Jesus did for three years, town to town to town, gave his gospel message, stump speech. That's what Mark is all about, showing us that he was up to. The kingdom of heaven, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He does kind of like a stump speech. Okay, so as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder. Do not steal, ah, commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. So looking at him, Jesus loved him. incredible love, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to me. Nope, give it to the poor. I don't need it, Jesus says. Go give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, because he had many possessions. So, and this kind of uh, sparks off a conversation Jesus has with his disciples about following him. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? I'm like, I'm trying to have a conversation with you guys about this, like, come on. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus says, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And Peter began to tell them, look, we've left everything and followed you. Peter also was married at the time. Like, he's traveling around in this ministry. He's left his wife at home. Uh, Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens, and fields, that is the community of God coming together becomes a family and they share their possessions, something that we see happen radically in the early church in Acts chapter two. They just share all their stuff and like this huge rebuke of a consumer economy. It's startling, okay? Along with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last First. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means more than than seeking him out and running up to him and kneeling before him and calling him good teacher. It means more than just following some some rules and and some things that he might tell you to do. It means going where he goes. Going where he goes. And, And what characterizes the life of someone who's willing to go where Jesus goes is how they consider their physical location in the world, how they consider their possessions, how they consider their relationships in the world. We use these things in the construction of our own glory projects. It's really difficult to follow Jesus when we do that. But if you're following Jesus, you're okay leaving them behind so you can be where he is that's a big question to contemplate. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that Christ asks you to sell all of your things, but what if he did? What, what, if, what if he wanted to use any of your things for his glory project? What if he needed you to go somewhere else and leave places and, and people behind that, that you love in order to get you his glory into new places, into new places? people that he loves. That's what following Jesus is all about. Following him through this earth, and, and it's unclear exactly, well, if he's gone, how does that work? And it becomes really clear in the book of Acts that it, it, it really comes down to a communion with God through the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and receiving a conviction about which relationships Um, are to be left behind, and then also just which relationships are are meant to be engaged in new ways to glorify God, which things are to be left behind, which which things actually now get repurposed in Jesus's glory project, Uh, which, what locations, and what people, and it it becomes conversation and a relationship with the Holy Spirit to navigate all of that. That's what following Jesus is going to look like, and he makes this clear at the Last Supper conversation. He's going to have with his disciples. I won't go too much more into that. That's coming in 2024. Buckle up. This is a hard challenge. I'm, I'm aware of that. We are rich Seattleites. I'm right there with you. Dying to and sacrificing our own glory projects, um, our own lives in this way is something that can feel impossible at times, um, scary, scary, but do you know who else felt it? Christ. Look at the next verse in verse 27. My soul is troubled. <sighs> Amazing. Jesus didn't show up as someone who had it all together necessarily, someone who's going to hide his vulnerabilities, someone who's going to hide his questions, his uncertainties, his fear, his troubled nature. He's going to share it. That's part and parcel of this troubling nature is what you feel when you have to contemplate your glory project versus God's glory project, your life versus the life of of Christ, glorifying him in the world. That's a troubling feeling. Jesus was right there with you. And, And he says this. He says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that's why I came to this hour. So what does he say instead? Father, glorify your name. Save me from this hour is the seed not falling to the ground and dying. Save me from the hour, this hour is if Jesus were to love his own life. But Father, glorify your name is the seed falling to the ground to die and multiply. Is Jesus hating his life, turning over any glory that he would be searching for himself and saying it's all about your glory project, God. And God shows up. He shows up. You can trust the glory of God. Look what God says. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I've always worked this way, and I will continue to work this way. Dying to these glory projects and getting on board with God, his presence shows up in our lives. That's not to say that like, we'll be able to like, get things from God, but we definitely get his presence. When we say, I'm going to make my life all about your glory project, God, he sends his Spirit. He sends his Spirit, and he's there with us. You can feel him. And you can trust it. Because hidden in the glory of God is goodness and blessing for Humans. That's the big idea here. The Father's gonna honor you if you give it up, Jesus says. He's gonna honor you, don't worry. He's going to honor you because he loves you. He loves you so intensely. Wrapped up in his glory is is goodness and blessing for humans. Getting on board with that project is gonna gonna bring you way more blessing and and way more life and way more joy than this self-glory project that you wanna prop up in the world. I promise you, I promise you, God thunders in this voice. It's so fascinating that when God shows up and he does give you that presence, the onlookers looking on are, always have different explanations of it. You ever notice this in your life? Here, uh, some of them say, the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Natural explanation. So often were Jesus' uh, miraculous signs and, 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 and sayings just, ah, oh, it's, it's just natural we have natural explanations for all of this. Humans have done this over the course of, th- 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 these things have happened before. We've seen them, we have natural explanations for them. Believe me, like, I, was in, I was in that, like examining that really deeply, astrophysics major. Like, some Christians have said some really strange things about space. We have natural explanations for them, praise the Lord, because it'd be really hard to continue thinking the earth is flat or things like this, right? But then there's, a, there's a, 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 another thing that happens. Some said an angel has spoken to him, which seems to get closer, but it's not God. It's a, it's a spiritual explanation. It's a spiritual, oh, that's just, that's just something spiritual happened. We're not exactly quite sure what. It's not God speaking, because then I'd really have to respond and have to do something. Remember that when the people, the crowd is speaking, these are the religious leaders. They're explaining away what just took place. Some spirit, something spiritual happened. It doesn't mean anything about. Doesn't confirm anything that this man has just said to us. That you need to follow him and get on board with his glory project. All right, so let's move on though, because Jesus actually doesn't like get involved in that debate much. He actually goes on because he wants to talk about how the glory project of the cross really works. All right, so that's in verse thirty. Oh yeah, starting in verse thirty. These next uh, three verses here. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So if we understand the cross as Jesus submitting to God's glory project, um. What does it actually do? Like, how does the cross actually bring glory? Jesus uses this phrase, it, now is the time for the world to be judged. Like, the cross is gonna judge the world. That's an attractive thing to say. Maybe go tell that to someone. Hey, you know the cross judges the world, right? Yikes. What are you talking about here, Jesus? It's a confusing statement because up to this point, Jesus has talked about how he did not show up to judge the world, Okay, he did not show up to judge the world, but to save the world. And and this is part of what's confusing when you read John, actually, both here in his book, and then he has, like, three other letters that he wrote um, in the back. He uses, like, words, and he gives lots of definitions to the same words, and sometimes he uses different words to talk about the same thing. He's, I think he's just, like, super, super intelligent and theological, and he's just like, we can use words like anything, you know? It's almost like being in a meeting room with David of Anger, you know? I'm just kidding, Dave. just kidding, um, but but he's super theological with this use of the word world, but he uses it in lots of different words throughout his gospel. So in chapter one, he uses the word world to just talk about the earth, how God created the earth through Jesus Christ. That's what he uses in chapter one. And in, in chapter three, he says, for God so loved the world he's talking about just all humans that God loves all humans um, and then he also uses the term world as a subset of, of people who are opposed to Jesus's followers uh, we'll see it at, in at the Last Supper um, Jesus says uh, the world will hate you um, but then there's a, this fourth version that he uses and there could be more but this is this is the, the fourth version that here the the, the world it represents all that which stands against the purposes and the plans of God to keep humanity shrouded in darkness, in confusion, in sin. The world really represents all that, which is the, 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 this alternate glory project that's going on. The head of it is the ruler of this world, the Satan, which is in Hebrew means accuser, the accuser. And Jesus says the cross starts right at the top, which means it includes everything else as well. Now, we've talked about this in going through the book of John. The other three accounts have demon exorcisms that Jesus does. John has none of them, except here. We have this casting out of the ruler of the world. John wants to just show you. He did it for the ruler. He obviously has power to do it for everyone. He did it with the top Dog. Okay, so so um, so that's what's going on here in a really fascinating way, where John doesn't talk about exorcism at all in Jesus's ministry, but then he says, "What about the exorcism of the cross?" But you guys didn't know that happened there. It's kind of a really cool nerd thing that John's doing, I think. <laughs> Jesus highlights the ultimate exorcism, I guess, the ruler of the world, the CEO, who really leverages all the byproducts of the fall, namely. Shame, condemnation for his own personal advantage and control. John says, Jesus undid his power. He did it. The cross removed the accuser. His accusations no longer carry any weight or force. How so? Because the Jesus as the Passover lamb took away the guilt of all who had put their faith in him. So the accuser is completely disarmed. Whenever you hear condemnation, whenever you feel shame for things you've done, after you go to the Lord and, and, and confess that, because part of it is the Holy Spirit will convict you. When, when we do things that are wrong, we go to the Lord and we confess it. But if it lingers, you know it's just a lie from the enemy. You're loved, forgiven. Grace has been poured upon you. It doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've done. The cross made it so that the Father can hold you whenever and through whatever. Jesus undid the power of the enemy. But it doesn't exactly stop there. That's just the ruler of the world. Remember, we said that the the, the world represents everything that leverages the byproducts of the fall for their own purposes or advantages, for their own personal glory projects, including the church, religion, religion, and that's what Jesus is talking to right here. He's talking to organized pharisaical religion that utilizes condemnation and shame to keep people coming back to them so they could maintain power and influence and money. Like, the cross undoes that garbage as well. It, if it removes guilt and shame, it also removes guilt and shame of any religion, including anyone in Christianity that would use it to have powerful influence over somebody else in any way, shape, or form. Praise the Lord. (laughs) No longer can guilt and shame be weaponized, people. That's what the cross did. No longer. No longer. The grace available of the cross takes it all away. But it doesn't stop there either, because beyond that exists larger and 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 more systemic systems within our society that leverage these same byproducts of the fall for their advantage, for their profit, for their gain. That capitalize upon sinful desire and work in manipulations that can lead to the most disgusting abuses of power and exploitation in the world of the weak and marginalized. These systems, like, they dehumanize individuals, entire people groups. They're like... They break up families. They, they alienate certain ethnicities. They escalate violence in the world. Like large societal structures have been introduced into our, our world at the behest of these uh, people who are on these insane glory projects that they don't care what damage and destruction it caused. Jesus says the cross takes care of that too. That, that, that I've taken their weapons out of their hands. For those who follow me, we have freedom and deliverance from that. Their tactics of guilt and shame, manipulation are empty. They've been disarmed too. Their tactics to get you isolated, mm -mm. the cross undid it and brings you into a family of God that will embrace you and accept you no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you have, no matter where you've been, no matter what you don't have. cross did it. It's so miraculous. It's so glorious. It is worthy of all of the praise. Jesus has accomplished so much. God's plan through him is so incredible. It undoes the pain points we feel in our existence in this world. We're no longer held in bondage, the cross means. We have freedom. It's insane. Glory never worked like this before. Never. Never did death lead to power. Ever, Look at the ancient world. Power was used to get more power. If you wanted more power, you would not do servant leadership. Jesus introduces that. We're going to go into it in 2024 as well. It's coming up at the Last Supper. Servant leadership is nonsense to a society and to a world that's not Christianized, it's it's utter not I don't think we realize this, that, that this is this is the water we're swimming in. That servant leadership is a is is a thing is because of this, the cross. That's God's plan. And we experience the blessing of it. And so we give him glory for it. We give him praise for it. It's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. The cross is the first evidence in human history that self-glory hating humility unleashes God's incredible power into this world. It's the first evidence of it. It's by the cross that we see a paradoxical reorientation of how power fundamentally works. God is different than us. Human strength can't do it ultimately, but human weakness, depending on the strength of God, does. It's the solution to our great human predicament to the great human peril. So what does this all mean? So John's showing us that that powerful life-altering glory was attached to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Often this talk of Jesus being lifted up in the first century and even today, this is what John's trying to correct, is really focused on his resurrection from the grave. And if you're really theological, you might say, oh, and the ascension too, because that actually gives us the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes up back into heaven with the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, okay? Like, that's the lifting up of Christ. That empowers humans moving forward. And John says, hold up, hold up, hold up. The lifting up starts at the cross. He was lifted up. He died into the grave. He's lifted up, resurrected, and then lifted up in the ascension. We have a three-part lifting. John's like, don't forget the lifting of the cross. That's an incredible, glorious thing that happened. It, it, It has empowered so much in the world. Don't forget it. It's part of the great lifting. And the reply of the crowd here, it makes it clear that they understood that Jesus was talking about his own death like we talked about earlier. This lifting up language not vague to them. They get it. Oh, you're talking about, you're talking about being lifted up on the cross. They get it. Just look at how they responded. Verse 34, right? Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And this is how Jesus responded. 35. 35. Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. He he took their question, and he's clever with it, and this may have remained cryptic to them. They say, You must not be the son of man. So who is the son of man? Who should we look for? And he says, no, I'm here so that you can be sons and daughters of the most high God. You're looking for a son of man. I'm giving you the opportunity to be his children. That's what I'm all about. Believe in me, the light of the world. Believe in me, and you can gain entry into the family of God. I'm trying to make you my brothers and my sisters. Trust the words that I'm saying to you so that you might become children of light. So I get that my words don't make full sense to you. I get that, that they're difficult to understand, I difficult there's actually no way that you can wrap your brain and head around this glory project that God is on right now, especially on this side of the cross. I get that you're confused. But can you trust me still? Can you be confused and trusting of me? Yeah. Can you have doubts and trust? Sure you can. Sure you can. The question really becomes, what other option do we have? What other option do you have? God invites humanity. He's inviting you to abandon your own glory projects to pursue his that he started in Christ 2,000 years ago a project that, that many have embarked on and many have, have enjoyed, experienced blessing, that they would testify God's glory project. You can trust that. I found life and goodness attached to it and now life evermore must be coming my way because of the more that I get on board with it, the more of his presence I experience and I just am so overflowing with the goodness of God. That's not to say that suffering's gone. That's not to say that hard things disappear. That is to say that when you gain a father's presence in the midst of all of them, you're convinced. I remember the first time God held me. Do you remember him? That's what can keep us trusting. When you remember that God's presence was with you in the hardest, darkest of places, You know that his glory is for your goodness. And so Jesus has said this, knowing and and hoping, because the plan was by design, that the crowds would not believe in him. But this glory test is for us as well. Will you choose Jesus' glory project over your own? And when you go back to your own glory project, will you confess and come back, And I'm gonna be part of Jesus' glory project again? The cross gave you the power to transition. He's gonna send his spirit to help you walk, walk it back every time you come back over to your own glory project because he's good. He, if the father wants to hold you, will you let him? Let's pray.